a few years ago when we were uh, in the midst of negotiating our water project with the uh, Department of Water Supply, uh, we got into a stalemate. And in one meeting that I'd requested with the uh, deputy director of the department, uh, things weren't going well. Uh, they weren't going well for me, anyway. And he turned to me and he said, you're old enough to know, and you don't need me to remind you, life's unfair. And with that comment, <laughs> I just had a tsunami of emotion and reactivity and impulses to say and do the wrong thing <laughs> just kind of flood through my mind. You know, I felt embarrassed. I felt I wanted to be angry with him. I felt humiliated. I saw the strategies in my mind to get even with him and to, luckily, <laughs> I'd been practicing meditation for 30-some years already, and, as, and I was able to just sit there in this room of engineers and designers and, and just sit there and watch all this go through the mind until the mind arrived at this understanding, oh, this can be dealt with, with which it all just settled down and I acknowledged the truth of what he had said. <laughs> Life is indeed really unfair. And get on to the next item on the agenda. We all suffer when our carefully scripted plan in life gets hijacked by some emotional volatility of an unstable mind. And we've all gotten caught in these emotional hijackings. We all want to be able to face these difficult, challenging uh, situations with some skill, some finesse, some ability to sidestep these unhelpful thoughts and emotions and feelings and just step aside, let them go flooding by and respond to the situation at hand rather than react. The key to being able to do that is having skillful attitude of mind. Being able to recognize when we have unskillful attitudes of mind, a sense of entitlement or expectation or hope or whatever, when we have an unskillful attitude of mind, we want to be able to recognize it and cultivating or developing skillful attitudes of mind, this is the foundation of, well, I think all spiritual practices have some, some self-awareness of what causes us to suffer and cultivating that which leads to less suffering. By cultivating skillful attitudes of mind, we gradually are able to see life with more awareness. We can see what is going on in our life. We can have more awareness, and in time, we can have more understanding. But we need to cultivate awareness. It isn't just plop in our lap. We need to cultivate awareness, and we need to stick with it in the sense of we need to stay with it long enough to learn from our experience. Because usually when something unpleasant arises in our life, in our experience, in our relationships, we recognize the unpleasant and we're out of there. Get me out of here. I don't want, I don't want to deal with it. Or we explode with some emotional reactivity and don't really see what's going on either. And so the being willing to learn from 
what we're aware of is an important element to growing in wisdom. Being able to do this is the result of two strands of, of practice. And the first is stabilizing our attention, steadying our attention to see what's going on. And the second is to understand deeply what is going on. First to see it with some continuity, and then to understand it in a way that leads us to respond skillfully rather than react habitually. This stability of attention and evolution of understanding, if you will, comes about because of three practices. When we have enough faith to apply ourselves to being aware. Faith, energy, and awareness results in stability of attention, or stabilizing the attention, and the opening to understanding things correctly. These five factors, faith, energy, awareness, stability of mind, and wisdom, are what are called the controlling faculties of mind. When they're present, or to the extent that they're present, developed, brought into balance, then the mind is something that we can actually enjoy living with. And when we don't have the faith and energy and awareness and stability of mind and, and understanding, our mind can be a pretty difficult companion in life. But we all want to make friends with our mind. And this is the result of awareness practice and the development of insight, which is what we're doing here. Just practicing being aware, beginning to see more deeply what's into what's going on and understanding it more skillfully. So I want to speak about these five conditions of stabilizing the mind or controlling the mind. The first is faith. Faith is our spiritual compass. It is the direction you're going. So when you look at your life and you see the direction you're going or the direction that you aspire to, what you have not yet realized but that you are headed towards, this is faith. It's faith that has this aspiration, that has this direction. Initially, faith can be just an interest or a curiosity. It might, we might get very inspired and, and exhilarated by some faithful type of experiences, even just watching a sunset or meeting a teacher that you feel in awe of or appreciative of can, can inspire you or can bring a lot of exhilaration. These are manifestations of faith, but it's immature faith because it's not stable enough to take us on the whole journey of self-discovery, but it's where we start. We start with some initial inspiration aspiration, exhilaration, and gradually as we practice, we refine our aspiration because we correct our misplaced faith. And as we realign our aspiration with what we have seen to be true, our faith becomes more stable more of a, a confidence, something that we can rely on because we know from our personal experience this is the way it is. When I first started uh, meditation practice, after just uh, a brief period of practice, 
I went on the staff at the Meditation Center in Massachusetts. And in one of my first days, and I'd only been practicing a couple of weeks of meditation, in one of my first days, I said to one of the other staff members, I have no doubt that in this lifetime, I will get the full benefit of practicing meditation. Of course, I had no idea what I was saying or what was going to be involved. But when I look back at it, I, I'm amazed at how ignorant I was <laughs> and how confident I was at the same time. This kind of faith, this kind of no doubt, can be really exhilarating. And it, it gets us going. It can get us started on this path of, of discovery. But as I soon found out, that doubt is contaminated by hope, uh, expectation, ambition, pride. There's all kinds of other qualities of mind that came to nibble away at this faith that I had. And this kind of immature faith, this untested faith, actually makes the mind vulnerable to ambition, uh, disappointment, expectation, because when any ambition, expectation, anticipation is present in the mind, we're not really in the present moment. We're kind of leaning into the anticipated or expected future, or maybe it's feared future, and we're not in the present moment. True faith only comes about because we're able to stay in the present moment really be with things the way they are and learn from them. A friend of ours, one of, student, one of, those, one of our students, uh, had great insight when she said, there's nothing like a good sitting in the morning to ruin the rest of your day. <laughs> and some of you will have that experience, have had that experience already today. You come and beginning. In the first sitting, it's quiet. The birds are chirping. It's still. What a relief. We're out of the house. We're out of the traffic. Nothing to do. Great. Man, the first sitting goes great. And you come back for the second sitting expecting something similar. And the mind is fidgety and restless and anxious and fretful and worried about something. And you think, what went wrong? Well, nothing went wrong except that your expectations and hopes weren't met and therefore you lost faith. Oh. Hope, expectation, anticipation undermine faith. But if we don't have faith and we don't practice we, or we don't pay attention, we won't see this. We won't understand, oh this is what's going on. My hope my expectation was unmet. Now I'm disappointed. We might think, oh, that's too bad. But it may be just as bad to actually have a second good sitting. Because then you say, hey, hey, hey now I'm getting it. Now I'm really cruising. I, now I know how to meditate. Now I really got it. No problem. And we get inflated with, well, uh, overconfidence, if not arrogance, pride, a sense of entitlement. I'm entitled to good sitting because I know how to do it now, every time. Well, this is equally unrealistic and not being, not staying in touch with the way things are. But if we don't see it, we may further attach a sense of self-importance, self-efficacy, uh, a sense of now I'm really fixing myself or I'm really getting it in practice. Well, we want to have confidence in practice. We want to have some faith in our practice, but we want to be careful not to 
exceed our speed, so to speak. Practice is a very gradual development of confidence, energy, awareness, stability of mind and understanding. And when we jump to the result we expect before we've done the work to get there, we can be sure we're on unstable ground. How do we avoid misguided faith? How do we avoid getting entrapped in immature faith, but believing that it's mature? We practice awareness. But we practice awareness with non-attachment. Whatever we become aware of, we don't identify with it. We don't hang on to it. We don't, we don't claim it as mine or that this is how it should be. We just see, oh, oh this is the way it is for now. And it's often important to, to remind ourselves, even to have that little tag phrase, oh, this is the way it is for now. Because insight is developing this understanding that everything changes continually. And so to kind of build in this attitude of mind, this understanding through an attitude of mind that says, well, this is the way it is for now. Let me see if I can just be with this. Keeping an eye out for expectations, anticipations, hopes, fears that might be lurking in the kind of the shadows of the mind waiting to take over. And when disappointment and frustration or pride arises in the mind, we we can be sure we're going to suffer. We're going to get entrapped in some very unpleasant uh, states of mind. Saito Utejaniya, one of the monks that I practice with in Burma, says, when your understanding of the true nature of things grows, your values in life will change. When your values change, your priorities will change as well. And through such understanding, then you'll naturally want to practice awareness more. And this will help you to do well in life. So this is faith, the first of the controlling faculties. It is the causal condition for the second of the factors or the faculties of mind, energy. Now, we know that nothing is accomplished without energy. You can't get out of bed. You can't make a cup of coffee without some energy. And so everything that is accomplished requires energy. So energy is a controlling faculty of mind and a controlling faculty of the progress of insight. But more effort does not equal more understanding. It is too easy to try too hard in practice. To take some technique and just grab it with an attitude of, I'm going to and hang on. And while we may perfect the technique, and we may become a really skillful technician, wisdom is going to be pretty thin. Or understanding doesn't come from striving. Right energy or right effort is really the willingness to just show up for this moment of your life. Just show up. You don't have to make it happen. You don't have to uh, understand it. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to figure it out. You just have to be there for it. Awareness itself will reveal what needs to be known and, in time, how to understand it skillfully. Now, in my early years of practice, or when I, was a, when I went to uh, Burma and ordained, 
in the monastery where I was practicing, the schedule was to wake up at 3 and sit and walk alternate hours until 11 o'clock at night. And you were allowed four hours of sleep. And there was two sh short meals during the day, and there was time to bathe, and then time to uh, report uh, to my, my teacher. So I, I was very enthusiastic to practice. I was very diligent, and I was just, I really wanted to be there. So in my enthusiasm, I said, well, if sitting an hour is good, sitting longer must be better. So I gradually lengthened my sittings from an hour to two hours, from two hours to three hours, from three hours to four hours. I'd sit down. Four hours later, I'd get up. And of course, it was not pleasant. In my daily report to my teacher, I go to Upandita, my teacher, and say, this is what I was doing in practice. And I would give him these elaborate descriptions of just the exquisite details of excruciating pain. <laughs> and he listened to this for a couple of weeks, you know, just giving me some, okay, please try harder, yes, okay, please try harder. And after a couple of weeks, he looked at me one day and he says, <clears throat> you know why you have so much pain? Immediately, I started expecting the deep teaching on pain the wise understanding that can free me somehow just from excruciating pain. So I said, uh, no, I don't, but what? He says, you sit too long. <laughs> ha. In my enthusiasm to be diligent and perfect this technique that I was learning, I had overlooked my ambition, my attachment, my agenda to become a technician a perfectionistic technician. One of my teachers has written a book where he lists the practices to rebalance our effort and reboot our attitude when our aspiration or our ambition takes us off course. And in his list of identifying behaviors of an overzealous mind was everything I was doing. Sitting too long, gritting my teeth, trying to get on top of everything, try, trying to endure without awareness, without full understanding, without an open acceptance of oh, this is the way it is. There are many skillful techniques for dealing with the difficulties in our life, for dealing with the difficulties in our practice. In practice, when we feel restless, we can stand up, we can walk, we can sit straighter, we can develop, we feel angry, we can develop loving kindness, we can open our eyes if we feel sleepy. We can, there's just many, many techniques which we've all learned, or if you've been practicing, or to the extent that you practice, you learn all kinds of techniques. However, any technique may be used with wrong effort. As skillful as a technique is, it's only as skillful as your understanding of it and your application of energy or effort in using it. So, after 30 years, you've learned a lot of techniques. You get pretty skillful at techniquing. A few years ago, I started practicing with another uh, monk in Burma. And he encouraged me to not do anything, to not do any kind of technique. So, my instruction was, Every time you find yourself about to apply a technique, you're going to go back to the breath. You're going to go back to your primary object. You're going to note something. You're going to sit a little straighter. You're going to adjust your posture. Whatever it is you find yourself about to do, don't do it. But instead, look at the moment that conditioned 
the intention to apply that technique. What happened to make you want to do that technique? What I discovered was that I hadn't noticed some unpleasant state of mind which had unconsciously conditioned a reaction of aversion. The reaction of aversion had conditioned the, I don't like it, let me out of here, which conditioned an in, a, a recognition of, oh, if I apply this technique, it'll get me out, it'll work. All I know is suddenly I was doing another technique and I had missed the unpleasant state of mind, I'd missed the aversion, I'd missed the agenda, I'd missed it all because the techniquing had become so habitual, it was unconscious. So while techniques work, the effort with which we apply them is important. And our attitude and understanding of them is equally important. Because if we use our techniques with the wrong attitude and a wrong understanding, we can become a technician, a perfectionist, a really good meditator who doesn't have any wisdom. We see this. We all experience this, to some degree or other, until we realize this is just not satisfying. It, this is not, it's nice to be able to do something well. But if it isn't leading to understanding and a greater sense of freedom and a greater sense of spaciousness in your life and less reactivity, why bother? Okay, so it's a very subtle understanding that we eventually arrive at that allows us to have the right attitude towards techniques and techniquing. It's helpful to remember or to hold this whole activity of awakening the mind as a journey. It's a journey of awakening. It's a gradual opening to what's going on in the heart, what's going on in the mind, and gradually growing in understanding how this is happening. How does it happen that I get caught in suffering, reactivity, emotional entanglement? And on the other end of the spectrum, how does it happen that I'm able to see what's going on, remain stable and calm in the face of overwhelming emotional intensity, and remain disentangled, remain free. It's through understanding that comes from just paying attention. So in our application of energy, in order that we don't become over-effortful, Saito Utejaniya cautions, it's not difficult to be aware. And we know that. If someone says, feel this, notice that, we can do that. It's not difficult to be aware. It's difficult to maintain it continuously. For this, you need right effort, which Sayadaw says is simply perseverance. Not endurance, not grit your teeth, not ambition. It's just perseverance. It's just being willing, again, persevering, again and again and again, with just acknowledging with a simple awareness, oh, this is what's going on. This is what's going on. Whether you like it or not, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, physical or mental, gross or subtle, familiar or novel, not important. What's important? Are you willing to be there for it? So we have faith, which is the fuel or the condition for energy. Uh, the second controlling faculty of mind. And with energy or with uh, effort, appropriate effort, we practice awareness. Now, as I just mentioned, it's not difficult to be aware, but it is difficult to sustain it. 
Now, isn't it amazing? You've probably had this experience already this morning. Isn't it amazing? You sit down and you tell yourself, okay, I want to be aware for, for half hour, 45 minutes. And promptly, the mind goes off in some long, wandering train of thought into some fantasy, some plan, some memory, some drama, some, some scenario. And while we're lost in that train of thought, we don't even know it. We don't know that train of thought. We don't know that we're sitting. We don't know that we're thinking. We don't know that we're, we're in this room with other people. We don't know anything that's going on at that time. But thankfully, something breaks the spell and we come out of that train of thought and we realize, oh, here I am just sitting. And in a moment of reflection, we can reconstruct this whole sequence of thoughts. Oh, from this plan, from this memory, you know, something that happened this morning to this memory, to this plan. And we can see this whole train of thoughts that just went by that we were completely unaware of. But the mind knew what was going on. The mind knew all those thoughts. But we were unaware of it. Okay. We're pointing to something, some activity of mind that we all know that the mind knows what's going on. And yet our awareness, we begin to see, is either unwilling or unable to be aware of it, to recognize it. Well, we're not trying to stop the mind from knowing. We're trying to develop the awareness to know or to be aware of what the mind knows. Awareness is a natural activity of mind. It happened due to conditions. When certain conditions arise, awareness is there. We, we all experience it. When those conditions don't arise, delusion, confusion, ignorance is there. And we've all wandered in deluded trains of thought. So we all know that this is true. Practice is to discover and cultivate the conditions of awareness. What are the conditions that give rise to awareness? And to, in the process to discover what are the conditions that give rise to delusion? Because we can cultivate the conditions for awareness and we can recognize and let go of or abandon the conditions that give rise to delusion. It's possible, but we have to be aware of them. So in our practice of awareness, we can expect to see a lot of delusion. How are we going to learn about delusion if we don't see the deluded mind, the mind that's wandering in thought? Now, we don't have to be ashamed. We don't have to be afraid of our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, the whole package. We want to learn from what we see. Because in learning about the deluded mind, we gradually extract, really, ourselves from it. We disentangle ourselves from this deluded mind. Awareness can be encouraged and strengthened. Delusion can be recognized and abandoned. But it takes awareness to, to, to recognize what the mind knows. Awareness aims to know three things. What's going on? What's our relationship to it? And the very fact of knowing that. So in practice, when we offer instructions, we say, or we ask you, what's going on? Pay attention. What, what are you aware of? What is the mind knowing now? Well, the mind is knowing sensations. It's knowing the breath, the in-breath, the out-breath. It's knowing the sounds of the birds. It's knowing a thought or a feeling or an emotion. What is going on? 
that's one object, we could say, or range of objects that awareness aims to discover. The second and equally important experience to be aware of is how are you relating to that? You know, the birds chirp, oh, I like that. Chirping, hearing, and liking is happening. Because when, you know, you're sitting down and it's nice and quiet, and then somebody beside you starts breathing heavy like they're going to fall asleep, I don't like that. Or we get frustrated, we get anxious, or we get, you know, critical or judgmental. It's like they shouldn't be doing that. It's just hearing a sound. Hearing a bird, hearing a snore, what's the difference? Hearing's happening. Well, the difference is in how we're relating to what we've heard. So we want to watch carefully. We want to be aware of not only what's happening, but how are we relating to it. And the third thing to be aware of is just knowing is happening. The mind is knowing, and there's awareness of it. These are the three things. Now, let me give you an example. When, okay, we get entangled in some story in our mind, and we get angry. You know, somebody says something. Oh, yeah, the deputy director says, oh, you know, you're old enough to know, you don't need me to remind you, life's unfair. So anger rises in the mind as a potential. Am I angry? Am I aware of the story of my anger? Or am I being aware of anger itself? Big difference between being angry, telling yourself the story justifying your anger or explaining it, or being aware, oh, anger has arisen in the mind. The first is being entangled in the feeling of anger. And while anger is a really unpleasant state of mind, it feels good to indulge it sometimes with a little bit of awareness we can see the story we can actually step back and actually see the story of my anger oh, I got angry because they said that I felt this oh, da, 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 da. yeah the first time that happened was when my mother did this my father did that yeah 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 okay now I understand yeah that's the story that's why I'm such an angry person yeah I'm an angry person you know and we can get a very I mean, we can spend a long time getting a very refined explanation of why we are the way we are. But we're still angry. Still caught in our conditioning of why I'm an angry person. Awareness is something altogether different. Awareness is the ability to recognize, oh, anger has arisen, and to... to I don't want to say objectify it, but to just recognize, oh, anger's present, anger's arisen. And it's not the feeling of I'm indulging in anger, and it's not even explaining the story of why I'm angry. It's just seeing this is the nature of anger. This is what anger does. When anger arises in the mind, this is what it does to the mind. This is what it does to the body. This is what it does to your sense of yourself. This is what it does to your practice. Awareness reveals all that. You don't have to figure it out. You don't have to explain it. It's not in a book. It's all there to be read in your own mind through awareness. To understand, oh, this is the nature of anger, or this is the nature of fear, or this is the nature of desire, this is the nature of pride, whatever. Whatever arises. This is the nature of anxiety. This is the nature of judgment, criticism. It's all there to be, to be discovered with awareness and understanding. Deeply habituated cultural, family, historical, genetic, uh, religious, and personal karma conditioning dominate the untrained mind. When the mind is untrained and we're not aware, we are jerked around by conditioning. Our family conditioning, our religious conditioning, our political conditioning, 
And it is extremely difficult to see it and to be aware of it and to disentangle your sense of self from it. But awareness practice brings these forces of conditioning into view. It sees it. It sees, oh, this is what's going on. If we live, or if we have a sense of shame about that, or if we have a sense of, oh, that's not okay to experience, we'll avoid it, we'll deny it, we'll minimize it, and we won't get the benefit of our awareness. It takes full face, front to front, awareness of these states of mind and these conditionings to really deeply understand, oh, this is the way it is. This is the way it's working in life, my life. When we bring these forces of conditioning into view, there's often a lot of judgment. I don't want to be like that. Or I shouldn't be like that. I shouldn't say things like that. I shouldn't feel that. And not only do we have these judging activity of our own self, we look around at others and we have a lot of judgments about them. Sometimes, as no doubt you probably have experienced, we can drive ourselves crazy with our judgments of ourselves and others. But think about it. We have the whole of human history, the evolution of human mind to thank for our ability to look at two fruit and know the difference between an apple and an orange. Or to look at two oranges and say, this one is better than that one. We need this ability to discern the subtlety of variety in fruit. Well, we're going to pick the wrong one, and we're not going to get nourished, and the whole human experiment is going to come to an end. Back there. Luckily, <laughs> some people were really aware, and they made the right choices, and now we don't have to be so selective. We can, whatever's in the supermarket is usually not too bad. But the capacity of the mind to distinguish subtlety in variety is not only towards fruit, it's towards people, it's towards our own states of mind. Which is, what is this, what is that? Which is better, which is less skillful? Actually, without this ability to discern subtleties, we could never have discriminating wisdom. We need it. We're not trying to stop the mind from judging and evaluating. We couldn't do that anyway. But we want to be careful about getting attached to or our judgments. <clears throat> to think, oh, this should not be happening about anything that you're experiencing is wrong attitude. And yet, we have that conditioning. So we need to see it. And by seeing it, we can begin to understand it and begin to disentangle our sense of self from it. Uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher of the last century, he said, the human mind is stuck in an absolute traffic jam of thoughts. And I think we, we know what he means. Because when you look at your mind, it's like, my God, the thoughts and the feelings and the emotions and the stories are just going on incessantly. Now, if we think practice is about becoming a traffic cop and directing these thoughts to where they're supposed to go, we're going to suffer. Because you can't stop the mind from thinking. That's not the goal of practice. But rather, we want to be careful about an attitude of thinking, I've got to get rid of these thoughts. I've got to calm these thoughts down. I've got to stop having these kind of thoughts. All wrong attitudes. But rather, we want to understand that these thoughts, these feelings, these plans, these emotions, are the result of conditioning. As Sayadaw Tejaniya, again, my teacher, uh, says, you know, the mind is not yours, but you're responsible for it. 
when these thoughts and feelings come into your mind, you didn't make it happen. You didn't invite it. In fact, often, you'd rather not have them happening. Nevertheless, though the mind is not yours, you still have to do something with them. You're responsible for them. How you respond or how you react to them, that's your responsibility. So he says, don't, don't, be, don't feel disturbed by the thinking mind. You're not practicing to stop thinking or to prevent thinking, but rather to recognize it and acknowledge it when it occurs. Because in, in cultivating the ability to recognize your thoughts, recognize your feelings, recognize your emotions, recognize your judgments, to recognize them with awareness is to disentangle your sense of self from them. And you can just step back and watch. There goes a thought. There goes a judgment. There goes a fear. There goes an anxiety. There goes... And these thoughts go through the mind continually to try to stop them, to try to suppress them, will lead to tension, blind spots in your mind, in your awareness, things that you just don't pay attention to. We can keep things out of the mind if we, if we suppress them hard enough. But that's not freedom. The path of insight is a path of discovery so that you uncover all that has been hidden and release it from the mind through understanding, well, this is the way it is and being able to uh, endure it if it's unpleasant and not get entangled in it. To understand the mind is not yours, but you're responsible for it. So we have faith, which conditions energy. Energy which, if developed, results in awareness. And awareness when it is sustained, when we're able to uh, stabilize our attention and awareness, results in concentration, the fourth controlling faculty of mind. Concentration, or stability of mind, is a result of continuity of awareness. The more continuous your awareness, the more stable the mind. It's not about focusing on some narrow, small, little sensation at the tip of the nose or in the belly or, or some staying continuously on some thought or some color or some visualization or some prayer. It's not, it's not that. Concentration, collectiveness of mind, is a result of the continuity of awareness. But it is possible to become very concentrated and not very aware. And so we want to be careful not to conflate experiences of concentration with insightful understanding. Often we begin our practice with a simple technique, paying attention to the breath or sound or a visualization or a mantra or something like that. And by attending to that object with some continuity, we see, oh, the mind gets really quiet. The mind can get very secluded from everything else that's going on in the room, everything else that's going on in your life. The mind just gets really secluded and you get very calm, very, very uh, quiet inside feeling. And it's very uh, seductive. We can think, ah, this is it. This is really good. I like being quiet. I like being still. I like not having any distractions. If I could go to a place where there's no noise, no activity, perfect. Perfect, but not wise. Insight knowledge, or the practice of insight, is learning to stabilize your attention on diverse changing objects. Being able to sustain the continuity of awareness when your experience is changing moment after moment after moment. Not just by staying on a single experience of the breath or silence or stillness or posture. We can do that. It does develop a kind of concentration, but excuse me, it's kind of like a stupid concentration. Now, I don't want to be too harsh. It's not, it's stupid in that it doesn't understand what's going on. It's calm, 
but it doesn't understand where that calmness is coming from and what disturbs the calmness. Insight understands where calmness comes from. Insight understands attachment to calmness. Insight understands our uh, uh, inability to endure distraction. Insight understands that. With that understanding, it's not a problem. This too can be dealt with. One of the experiences that occurs in insight practice that is often uh, counterintuitive, destabilizing, difficult to deal with, is when our awareness is strong enough to notice everything that's going on. There's a lot going on. There's, there's stuff going on in the body, in the mind, in the environment, all the time. You can't shut it off. Awareness or insight practice does not try to shut it off, but it tries to open to be able to recognize all that's going on and not be bothered by it. But initially, when as the awareness opens to all the thoughts and all the feelings and all the sensations and all the memories and all the plans and all the judgments, it can be a little overwhelming. It's just like a kaleidoscope of a barrage of all of the experiences you've had in life coming at you. It's counterintuitive because most of us have come to practice out of some hope or some experience or some seeking of calmness, tranquility, quiet, peacefulness. We want that in our life. And it's good. It's good to want that. That's a good aspiration. But when you practice insight, that's not the goal. It's kind of like a byproduct. It comes along. If you practice skillfully, it'll come along. But to get caught there is to get stuck. So to, to when, when faced with this overwhelming, this onslaught of changing experiences, to go back to your chosen object, to go back to your mantra, to go back to your, your breath, to go back to your visualization, is actually counterproductive to insight. Counterproductive to developing understanding. It's calming. It can lead to a sense of real tranquility and seclusion, but that doesn't lead to understanding. So insight, with insight practice, we encourage you to stay present with this feeling of being overwhelmed. Because it's just a feeling. It's just a feeling. It's another human condition, feeling, response to the way things are. And if we avoid it continually through techniquing some calming practice, we'll never learn how to deal with the overwhelming onslaught of all six sense doors being barraged all the time. It takes a while to learn this, that this is the path of insight. But as concentration gets stronger, meaning as the continuity of awareness increases, we begin to handle it. We, 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 can, we can handle changing, diverse phenomena, and a lot of it. Then we get calm in the face of all that's going on in life. We get calm, we get blissful, we get excited, we get you know, super confidence, we get a simmering sense of well-being, we feel pleasant in the body, the body feels light. We f There's all kinds of what one of my teachers, Saito Upandita, calls spiritual goodies. The spiritual goodies, it's the things we look for. Calmness, bliss, super confidence, great faith, feeling very inspired, feeling very light, feeling lightheaded, all kinds of um, pleasant distortions of reality. We like that. We like that stuff. And when it happens, we get caught. We think, I got it. Now I've got it. Or now I'm really doing good. These are also defilements. To think, now I've got it, is delusion. To think, I did it, pride. It's, it's important to remember in, in, at this phase in practice that 
the stronger the awareness, the subtler the defilement. The stronger your awareness, the subtler the defilement. If you have really, really, really strong awareness where you can just be with anything, the defilements that creep into the mind are subtle delusion and subtle sleepiness or subtle content. I say contentment. It's actually complacency, subtle pride. These are not big painful defilements like anger and rage and fear and jealousy. These are really subtle. In fact, we like them usually. And so the refinement of our understanding has to keep growing or we're going to miss the subtlety of the defilements that arise. Upandita would encourage me when I got caught in you know, thinking, oh, tranquility is great, calmness is wonderful, quiet is, is good enough, bliss is even better. When I would get caught there, Upandita was, he was very out front. He'd say, yeah, this is, this is good. This is a result of good practice, but there's better things ahead if you can let go. If you can see all of these spiritual goodies, it's, it's just bliss, <laughs> it's just calmness, it's just quiet, it's just, and it takes an attitudinal shift not to indulge in the spiritual goodies, but to see it's just another experience being known. It's just another experience. It doesn't last. It comes, it goes due to conditions. Don't make a big thing of it. And when we don't, then we can move beyond that to the better things ahead. And the way to do that is to ignore all of these dramatic displays of spiritual goodies and to attend to the continuity of awareness, to look at the awareness itself. Because to focus on the goody, the calmness, the bliss, ecstasy, whatever it is, is to miss the awareness. Stability of mind is a great joy in practice. When the mind is calm, we feel life is great. The sense of well-being is really uh, seductive. A sense of like, oh, this is really good. I feel really safe. I feel really calm. I feel really collected and connected and really in touch with myself and everyone else. And that's a, that's a, a very seductive feeling. But it is just another experience to be known. And it's wisdom that sees this, that understands this. In practice, we, we discover the lenses through which we view our life. And because of concentration or stability of mind, we're not caught in so much reactivity. It is wisdom that then understands, oh, this is the way things are. As, as, my, as one of my teachers says, Utejaniya says, awareness alone, not enough. Understanding is necessary. When we walk into a museum and we see a tapestry on the far wall, we see the picture, or we see the story that that tapestry is telling us. Oh, there's two women sitting at a table over a bowl of fruit having a conversation, and, and, and that's the story. And we see that. But as we walk closer to that tapestry, we lose the perspective of the whole story, and we get just kind of focused on or kind of pulled into some little piece of it, the bowl of fruit, for example. And then we look at the fruit and we think, oh, wow, those are really fantastic fruit. That's really nice, Ugh, whatever it is. I wonder what kind of fruit that is. But in any event, we get pulled into that piece of the story. But if we walk really close to the tapestry, when the docent isn't looking, and we look, and we even touch it, and, and, and see, we see that that whole story that the tapestry is telling us is made up of colored knots of thread. That's all. Colored knots of thread. Well, 
in practice as we pay attention to our life and we see the stories of our life. We see the stories of who I am, how I got here, what I like, where I'm going, what works for me, what doesn't work for me, what causes me anxiety and fear and jealousy and envy and how my life could be better and how it's not working. And we all have all these stories about our life. Practice brings us closer to the stories so that we, that we, get, uh, we don't get so enamored of the story and we start to see into the construction of the story. How is this story happening? How is it that I get caught in my fear? How is it that I get caught in my anxiety? How is it that I get caught in my addiction? How is it that I get caught in my, you know, oh poor me, life doesn't work somehow. And we start to see the moment-to-moment construction of our personal suffering. And it's constructed out of little bits and pieces, little pixels of experience. A sensation, a thought, a memory, a feeling, a judgment, a discernment, a this, a that. And suddenly, because we didn't pay very close attention, it becomes the story of my suffering life. Practice takes us through the story, into the suffering, to to see the pixels of experience that create the suffering. And when you understand that the story that causes of your life that causes you so much suffering is just knotted threads of experience, that understanding frees you from suffering. Frees the mind from suffering. Because you see, it's just pixels of phenomena. It's just a memory, a plan, a thought, a judgment, a fear. You don't have to make it into the story of my life. I was practicing in in the monastery in Burma, and I uncovered a feeling, an underlying feeling tone in my life that I had never seen before. Self-pity. Oh, poor me. You know, my life doesn't work because I'm too old, my father was an alcoholic, you know, know, I'm too stupid, whatever. It's just, you know, there was all kinds of threads to the story of why my life didn't work. And I just watched this story go by day after day after day and all the threads and all the justification and all the rationalization and all the fears of it. What if it was true? Oh my God, you know, my life really is a mess. And just by just watching it as best I could, sometimes I was indulging, sometimes I was very aware, sometimes it was, I wasn't clear whether I was aware or indulging. But in the course of watching, gradually the whole package, the whole story just unravels into a pile of threads, momentary experiences, physical, mental, pleasant, unpleasant, familiar, novel, gross, subtle, stuff. When seen in that way, there's no construction of self to suffer. There's just stuff happening. When you get identified with it, when I got identified with it, I suffered. When awareness saw what was happening, there was non-reactivity of mind. It was balance of mind. There was freedom. This is the way it is for all of us. As we learn to stabilize our awareness, see how it is happening, we really understand, oh, this is how suffering in my life comes about. Because we don't see the storytelling. In some ways, we could say, insight practice is the fearless willingness to ask ourselves, what is causing me suffering? And not to explain it, not to avoid it, not to minimize it, not to deny it, but just to see, this is a story. It's just a story. It's just a story. And when you see it as a story, in the, the words of the story, in the chapters of the story, in the sentences of the story, you realize it's just one way of seeing things. 
Awareness alone is not enough. Understanding is necessary. Taking it all in stride, just taking a look, taking it all in stride, accepting this is the way it is for now, gradually allows the understanding of the unconditioned mind to appear. What it would mean to have a mind unconditioned by family, friends, education, being human, unconditioned, is possible. We either make ourselves miserable or we make ourselves strong. The amount of work is the same. We have to work hard to make ourselves miserable. We have to keep working, going over the same old terrain. Oh, poor me. Memories and fears. And it was just, you know, blame. And it. If we work hard at it, we can really make ourselves miserable for a good long time. But if you want to be free and stop suffering, it's no more work. It's just applying your energy in a little different direction. And just learning to disentangle the mind from suffering. The choice is ours. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.